Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. One of my sources for the current run of episodes is Medieval Europe by Chris Wickham. You can listen to it for free at audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 162, Venetians and Normans. So, we've covered Italy and the former Carolingian realms. Now we move on to talk about other Western and Northern powers that will impact our story going forward. Venice, the Normans, the Hungarians, the Pechenegs, and the Rus. Last time I said we'd be talking about all of that today, but I've now changed my mind. So today it will just be the Westerners, and next time we'll move on to the steppe. This should make everything easier to remember. As usual, we'll be talking big picture and only focusing on the relevance of these nations to Byzantium. But all of this is definitely worth your attention. Everything we discuss today will play a big role in the collapse of Roman power over the next century and a half. Let's begin with Venice and remind ourselves of where we were at the end of the last century. Back in episode 114, we talked about the growth of Venetian wealth, fueled in part by the slave trade. The money that this traffic brought to the lagoons allowed for vital building projects to take place at the start of the 10th century. It was during this period that walls were built around the islands of the Rialto, and an iron chain was put in place that could be thrown over the entrance to the Grand Canal. These moves were made in response to Magyar raids, but they also fitted a general pattern of Venice becoming a more centralised and independent state. Historians observe that during the 10th century, the powers of the Doge became ever more absolute, and that the Venetian clergy established ecclesiastical independence from the mainland. We won't spend too much time fleshing this out, but as we'll see during the course of the narrative, by being eternal outsiders, Venice could always benefit from the suffering of others. Magyar raiding, for example, increased the importance of the Venetians as middlemen, 
with land routes less secure in Western Europe, the Italian merchants became the primary carrier of goods, letters, and pilgrims from west to east and back again. The Venetians moved freely around Francia, Byzantium, and the Fatimid Caliphate, identified by the authorities as relatively harmless. Since they were from a neutral state, as it were, they weren't going to join in any local rebellions, nor were they strong enough to launch attacks on their own. Instead, they bought and sold and moved on. The Venetians were pushing further afield, too. Since the collapse of Abbasid power, the Byzantine port of Trebizond had grown in importance. It sits in the northeast corner of Anatolia and became a connecting hub for the trade of the Caucasus, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. From this Black Sea port down to Constantinople, from Crete round the Levant via Jerusalem to Alexandria, everywhere you would find Venetian traders looking to make a deal. One of the more profitable exchanges was to bring lumber to the Muslims. The thick, forested areas of the Alps, Dalmatia, or even Anatolia provided the type of wood needed to make ships. This was often lacking in the lands of the Caliphate, and so Venetian boats loaded with wood arrived on the North African coast. Big, sturdy vessels were needed for this cargo, and to make it worth their while, the Venetians needed to collect an equally bulky substance to take home. The answer was alum, which was used to dye fabrics, which was in high demand both in Constantinople and in the expanding wool industry of the West. Another item carried to the Fatimids was weaponry. As with the slave trade, the Venetians had no moral qualms about arming the enemies of Christendom. It was John Zimisces who finally asked the Doge to ban this trade after he discovered that not only the ships, but the swords and shields of the Fatimids were coming in on Venetian carriers. The prohibition may have lasted for a couple of years, but trading was soon back in full swing. Two examples of the growing power of Venice touched briefly on our narrative. During the dark days of the Bulgarian War, when Dyrrhachium was lost and Samuel's men seemed in control, the Byzantine cities of the Adriatic coast came under attack. Some by the Bulgarians themselves, but most by Croatian pirates or other Slav tribes attacking from the interior. With no help coming from Constantinople, it was the doge, Pietro Orsiolo, who decided to act. He led out the Venetian fleet and sailed slowly down the Adriatic. At each Byzantine port, he was cheered and welcomed. The Slavs fled. The pirates signed a peace treaty. When the Doge returned home, he took the title Duke of Dalmatia to add to his honorifics. This gentle procession seems to have been unsolicited from Constantinople. It was simply a demonstration of Venetian power. 
Naturally, it was in their interests to eliminate piracy and prevent the Bulgarians from disrupting their home bases. And when Basil II won the war, the Doge welcomed the return of Roman rule. He had installed no garrisons, nor collected any taxes, but the point had been made. Venice was much closer to Dalmatia than the Byzantine capital. Four years after this jaunt and the Sicilian Arabs besieged Bari, the Byzantine HQ in southern Italy. Again, Basil was in no position to help them, but the Doge was. Venetian warships ejected the Arabs and relieved the city. It was shortly after this that Basil attempted to secure the Doge's favour with a marriage alliance, which we'll come to in a moment. First, let's just clarify the relationship between the two sides. Venice was still, as it had always been, technically a Byzantine possession. In reality, of course, Constantinople had no direct control over the city, and as we've seen with the attempts to ban certain trade, Byzantium had little control over the Venetians outside of its home waters. But both sides worked to maintain the relationship. Constantinople remained the most important market for Venice. It was a huge consumer of goods and produced expensive luxury items like silk, which could be sold in the West. Constantinople was a friendly Christian city where the Venetians were better positioned than any of their competitors. For the Romans, Venice was a vital listening post and source of intelligence on Western events, as well as handy couriers for people, post, and goods heading in that direction. They also provided free naval assistance for Byzantine shipping. This was vital, because Constantinople could not easily afford to maintain a proper navy in the Adriatic. If the Venetians would do it for them, then that was a relationship very much worth preserving. Fortunately, when it came to the Adriatic, the two sides had perfectly aligned interests. Neither wanted to see the Franks dominate the lagoons, or for piracy to gain a foothold, or for the Sicilian Arabs to attack either coast. Embassies darted back and forth across the waters throughout the century. Both sides keen to keep up appearances and protect the status quo. From the perspective of Constantinople, the major threat to this relationship came from the German emperors. Within Venice, rather like at Rome, there were pro-Byzantine and pro-German factions. But the ability of the Venetians to slip out to their islands away from the German armies maintained their independence from East Francia, and the commercial value of Constantinople meant that pro-Byzantine parties were usually in control. Byzantium was not complacent about this. A couple of examples from the narrative are again revealing. As I mentioned last week and earlier in this episode, the ruling family of Venice at the turn of the millennium were the Orsiolo. In 996, the German emperor Otto III 
requested a meeting with the Doge to confirm the privileges of the great trading city. East Francia also benefited from the goods brought to and from them by the Venetians, and these privileges confirmed the rights to travel and trade within their realm. To seal the deal, the emperor offered to stand a sponsor at the confirmation of the doge's youngest son. The boy was named Otto, to honour this generous offer. A year later, and the doge's eldest son was in Constantinople, at imperial invitation, being invested with honours and titles. We suspect that this arrangement was made to forestall any sense that the Germans might be gaining the upper hand with the Venetian elites. Eight years later, and the same pattern played out, the Ottonian successor Henry II sponsored an Orsiolo boy who was named Henry in honour of his patron. A few months later, the Doge himself travelled to Constantinople with his boys. Going a lot further than sponsorship, the Doge's eldest son, Giovanni, was married to Maria of the Achiros family. You remember her from last episode. She was the one who liked to use a fork and have clean bathwater, and was ridiculed for this by later theologians. This was not merely a Byzantine noblewoman. Maria carried imperial blood in her veins. She was the granddaughter of Romanus Achiros and Agatha Lecapinos, one of the Emperor Romanus I's daughters. Maria was therefore a relative of Basil II's, and while certainly not a purple-born princess, still as prestigious a bride as a foreigner could hope to meet. The Byzantines had trumped the Germans on this occasion, though it's worth noting that Western sources claim that Basil had to ask repeatedly to get the marriage to take place, and that he presided over the festivities personally handing out gifts to the guests. The Vasilevs clearly cared a great deal about his relationship with Venice. The newlyweds were kept at the capital throughout the winter. Not only did this allow time for the importance of Constantinople to be impressed upon Giovanni, but it also ensured that as they began their return voyage, Maria was already pregnant. The lengths the Byzantines were prepared to go to to secure their alliance with Venice tells us plenty about the strategic situation during Basil's reign. In fact, our first written evidence of the privileges available to Venetian traders comes from this time. The edict confirms that Venetian merchants should only pay the standard fees for entry to Constantinople. This was two gold coins on arrival and fifteen on departure, paid for by the profits you'd made, presumably. Now, this was the standard deal that all merchants received. But what was going on was that officials at the custom posts were charging far more than this. When enough Venetians complained, the emperor stepped in to assure them of how important they were to him. 
just restating what should be charged wasn't likely to change much. Corruption of this type was a fact of life. It was another condition of the edict that made a real difference. From now on, Venetian ships would be under the jurisdiction of the Logothete of the Thromos. The Logothete was one of the most important ministers of state, responsible for foreign affairs and communications. Naturally, he wasn't going to be down at the docks inspecting ships personally. But as this was now his business, it was likely that lower functionaries would be far warier of abusing their position. The law closes by asserting that the Venetians remain loyal servants of the emperor, and long may this continue again implying that customs agents who treat them poorly were damaging the interests of the state. None of this is revolutionary information, but it confirms in official script how Constantinople viewed the Venetians. No similar document exists for any other people. In fact, in the text, Jews, Lombards, and traders from Amalfi are singled out as not deserving the same attention as the Venetians. Historian David Nichol says that this shows Venice receiving most favoured nation trading status, or the Byzantine equivalent. Though we know that Venice will play a key role in the sacking of Constantinople in 1204, and though this century saw the Venetians grow in wealth and self-assertiveness, Still, in 1025, neither side would have perceived the balance of power to have shifted dramatically. Venice needed Byzantium far more than the other way round. Without the cooperation of the Romans, the Venetian trading network would lose most of its value, whereas Constantinople could always find other people willing to do business. For now, both sides continued to value the benefits of their relationship. Before moving on, I'll tackle a listener question. Uh, listener MR asks why the German emperors targeted southern Italy when they wanted Byzantine attention rather than try to capture Venice. It's a good question, but hopefully one which has been answered over the past couple of episodes. Southern Italy remained under Byzantine control, while Venice did not, so it was easier to threaten to take something tangible away from the Romans. Venice was also harder to capture because of its position on the islands of the lagoon. Charlemagne had attempted this move in the early 9th century, but the Italians retreated into the waters and waited for the Franks to leave. The Frankish kingdoms had never been strong naval powers, and so this impediment remained. I think it was also politically difficult for the Germans to announce that they were going to annex a peaceful Christian neighbour. Remember, the emperors needed the cooperation of their fellow dukes to rule, and they didn't want to be condemned by an independent pope for such aggression. Various attempts were made to bring the Venetians into the fold peacefully, but none succeeded. Venice knew the value of its independence. 
So we head further north and west to the mouth of the River Seine. It was by this route that many Viking attacks were launched on the realm of the Franks during the 9th and 10th centuries. During these operations, groups of Vikings would sometimes attempt to create bridgeheads, or just winter camps to live in on the mainland while conducting raids and trade elsewhere. One of the locations that proved fruitful for such stopovers was the mouth of the Seine. It gave them easy access to the sea and a fine river route deeper into West Francia. From the Frankish perspective, one solution to the Scandinavian menace was to offer them a permanent settlement on the mainland. Poacher would turn gamekeeper and protect that patch of coast from raids by their countrymen. In 911, a deal like this was struck with a Viking leader named Rollo. His band of raiders agreed to establish a permanent presence in northwest Francia, and in exchange, he would convert to Christianity and stay loyal to the king. That is a very brief summary of the origins of the Normans. As I talked about two episodes ago, the kings of West Francia struggled to gain much control over their subordinate nobility during this period. The oath of loyalty from the proto-Normans was therefore very welcome, and it allowed Rollo and his followers to continue attacking their Frankish neighbours. Their oath was to the king, not to the independent leaders of Brittany or Flanders, who might be, at that time, their sovereign's rival. Over the course of the next century, Rollo's successors would expand their domains into what became the Duchy of Normandy. They also had to integrate different populations, turning Franks, Bretons and Scandinavians from different backgrounds into Normans. By 1025, we know that the area was Christian architecturally and Frankish by language. But important aspects of Viking culture had embedded themselves in the Norman mindset. The elites of the duchy were highly militarised and competitive. Obsessive training was demanded of young men, and the pursuit of advancement and glory were highly prized. This was not so dissimilar from the elites of the rest of the Frankish world, but we detect a ruthlessness amongst Norman warriors that may have been absent elsewhere. Within Normandy, this meant regular jockeying for position. Historian David Crouch points out that when there was a strong Duke of Normandy, he could command one of the most powerful forces in Europe because his subordinates would all be surging forward, aiming to impress him and gain preferment. But under a weak duke, it would lead to anarchy and civil conflict. This highly competitive atmosphere encouraged many second or third sons to leave the duchy and seek their fortune elsewhere. And that's where Byzantium comes in. As I mentioned in our Italy episode, Norman adventurers would find an ideal home in the south. 
with ten different states to work for, a mercenary could grow rich, selling his service to the highest bidder. When they left their boats behind, the Northmen had taken quickly to horse riding, and these Norman knights practised the type of heavy cavalry tactics which had made Nicephorus Focus so successful. In Italy, where most armies were small and inexperienced, the Normans quickly became the dominant force. With the acquisitiveness of their Viking ancestors, they began to take over the realms which they had been hired to defend. A century from where we are now, Norman leaders would control England, Sicily, southern Italy, and their own crusader state. A highly impressive record for a relatively small duchy within West Francia. From our point of view, though, the Norman attacks on Byzantium are the harbinger of dark times. They become the first Western Christian people to make war on Romania for their own gain. Once that seal was broken, it was easier for others to justify attacks on their eastern brothers. That's still a long way off, though, in 1025. And next time, we'll take a look at the interconnected fates of the Magyars, Pechenegs, and Rus, and how their development would affect Constantinople. Speaking of the city of Constantine, on the 1st of March, in a couple of days, for those of you listening to this as soon as it's released, I will be launching my Istanbul Kickstarter campaign. I will release a podcast on the day explaining all the details, and there will be a launch video where you can see my attempt at very cheesy comedy. Please consider supporting it. Uh, There will be plenty of juicy rewards on offer, and hopefully it will produce some great content for the show. In the meantime, if you'd like more audio content, then check out audible.com. I'm sure you know all about it. Chris Wickham has been an invaluable source for all these end-of-the-century episodes where I catch up on events in the West. His book, Medieval Europe, covers the period of the podcast, basically, uh, from the end of the Western Roman Empire to the Reformation. If you'd like to hear about the sweep of Western European history and how the experience of one continent developed, then check out Medieval Europe for free when you begin a trial of Audible service. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to support the history of Byzantium while you're there. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.